He's not finished with us, is he? Aren't you glad about that? You know, we've been talking about breakthrough, and I want to talk to you this morning about three things that can really just kind of stop breakthrough in its tracks, or at least really severely limit the breakthrough that you're wanting to get in your life. So I want you to pull out your sermon notes with me, and let's take a look at that. When you uh, see the words of Jesus, he says this, give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What is he saying there? He's saying that you're going to determine the size of your breakthrough. You're the one that's going to be the one that decides that. That's what he's saying, the measure that you use. That same way that you measure things out, it'll be measured back to you by God, by others. And it's interesting here because a lot of pastors have used this when talking about giving with money and it's okay to use it that way but that's really not what it's talking about we're going to see what it's really talking about uh, here in, in just a moment but in order to grasp the meaning we have to kind of understand that this was a common everyday occurrence in Jesus time it still is in a lot of third world countries in Burundi for example where we are working there in the heart of Africa You'll see merchants will come out on the street and they'll put down like a blanket or something and they'll just have their rice piled up on top of it. And someone will come along and they will haggle back and forth about the price and then when they finally decide, they'll have either some big scoop or some way that they measure it out and they'll pour it in whatever they brought to take it home in, a bowl or whatever. Now in Jesus' time, if you've got a really good merchant, the one that most people would want, they would make sure that you got as much as you could get. They would do several things. They would first fill up your, your bucket or your bowl after you had made your price with them. And then they would try to pat it down with their hands. And then they would pour more on top because there was more space. And then they would shake it really good. And it would shake down again and fill up all of the space. And there'd be more room. And then they would pour more until it overflowed. And then you would try to catch that in your robe. Like you would just kind of make a little bowl with your robe and catch what was left over and take all of that home with you. And those were the merchants that were the most popular. Those were the ones you wanted to go to. They were the generous ones, not the stingy ones. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. Well, what are the things that can stop that overflow, that can stop the breakthrough that he's trying to accomplish in your life? I, I think really... Three big things come to mind. The first one is mistaking who is God. Mistaking who is God. And, and that's really called forgiveness when we look at it. That's, we're going to see how that, that works here in just a second. In fact, let me just read to you the whole passage about giving there that Jesus was talking about. He says this in verse 36. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap with the measure you use. It will be measured to you. What's he talking about there? Is he talking about money? No, he's talking about forgiveness. He's saying as you forgive, as you show mercy, be 
merciful. Only those of us who have received that extreme mercy from God can really know what that means, what that feels like. But it's going to come back to you. What you give out will come back to you. Lewis Mayer, uh, the one who was part of that Metro Goldwyn Mayer studio that we always see up on the, the screen, he was a young boy. This is a hundred and some odd years ago. He, he got in a fight. He got a black eye. He ran home to his mom. His mom's putting ice on the black eye. And they lived in this little house backed up to a canyon and, uh, in California out there. And he said it was that other guy's fault. He did all of it. And he's going on and on about all the stuff he did. And his mom found out that Lewis had called him some names to start things off, really. And, and, and so she said, come here, Lewis. I want to show you something. They went out to the back door and stood on the back porch and facing out toward the canyon. It was crazy because it was kind of a natural echo chamber. And she said, I want you to think of every awful name that you want to call that boy right now. And I want you to yell it as loud as you can. And he would yell out some awful name. And he said it would echo right back to it. And then he would yell out the next one and it would echo back. Finally, she said, now I want you to yell out, God bless you. And he yelled that out and it echoed back. And he said, even as an old, old man, when he was telling the story, he said, I never forgot that. What you give out always comes back. Well, that's the biblical principle. That's what his mom was trying to teach him is what Jesus was trying to say. In fact, he goes so far as to say that if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. Did you know that? Who said that? Jesus said it. He's giving the model prayer, the Lord's prayer, the Our Father prayer that we know how to say together. And he talks about forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then after he finishes, he says this in Matthew 6, 15. In prayer, there's a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do you, your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. And some of the versions are just really plain. It really, in the Greek, the New Testament, it's really plain. It says, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Many years ago, there was a general by the name of Oglethorpe, and he said to the great uh, preacher John Wesley, he said, I never forgive I never forget, and John Wesley said, well, sir, I hope you never sin, because you'll never be forgiven. And the guy was stunned and, and asked more about it, and you, you start to think about that. Is it important that we forgive? If we're never going to be forgiven, if we don't forgive, this is Jesus talking. So you want to stop this breakthrough in your life? One of the big ways is to hold unforgiveness. Well, how do you forgive how do I do it that's that's what we need to know because the big thing is that forgiveness so much of the time is not what we think it is we think it's a feeling we think it's a feeling that we feel and I don't feel like forgiving I would just be a hypocrite if I forgave that person and again it's not minimizing what was done to you it was horrible and 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 the feelings that you feel are appropriate even and that would be what anyone would feel who had gone through what you went through. It was horrible what was done to you. I'm not minimizing it. It's not to say, oh, well, it's okay. I'm da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Here's the thing. Here's what forgiveness really is. Let me read it to you from what 
Paul says in Romans 12, 19. Again, my loved ones, do not seek revenge. Allow God's wrath to make sure justice is served. Turn it over to him. For the scriptures say, revenge is mine. I will settle all scores. You know what it actually says in the original language? It says, leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for the wrath of God. So what forgiveness really is when you don't seek revenge yourself, when you forgive, it's just getting out of God's way with that person that's hurt you. God says, I'm going to make things right. I'm a God of justice. I'm a God that, that sees everything. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. But you're going, no, vengeance is mine. I will, I'm going to make those people pay. And really the only one that's paying probably is you. Jesus said in another place, when you hold unforgiveness in your heart, it's you've invited the torturers to come in to the inside of you and like eat you up from the inside out. And that's what it'll do. And it'll stop that breakthrough in its tracks completely. And so what you do when you want to forgive someone, it's not like, oh, I'm just going to forgive and forget. You're a human being. You can't forget. Only God can do that. I think we got forgive and forget from the, the Bible verse that says God puts our sins behind him and remembers them no more when we confess them to him. Well, he's God. He can do that. See, if you've confessed your sin to God and you've meant it, he put it behind him. He doesn't even remember it. And some of you are still holding on to guilt from some of those things and you come back, God, I still feel really bad about that. And he's going, about what? You know, about that thing. What thing? Because he's God. He can do that, all right? But you can't, you're not God. You can't do that. Your mind doesn't work that way. Well, I'm just going to forgive and forget. I wonder why I can't forget that. And every time I see them, I just kind of bow up, right? Every time I hear their name, it's like, yeah, that's normal. That's not anything to do with forgiveness. That's called being human. What forgiveness is, is saying to God, I trust your heart enough that I'm going to move out of your way so that you can handle this person. Now, that's kind of scary for that person to me. If you ask me, forgiveness is kind of scary for the person that you're forgiving. I'm going to move out of the way, God. There you go. Clear shot, right? Now, I don't know what God's going to do, and he has his own timing, and he, but he says, I'm going to make everything right. I will make it right in my time. Trust my heart. And then you just forget handling that. You don't forget what happens. You can't. But you just say, God. And every time you do it, I have to, I don't know about you, but forgiveness is an ongoing process for me. I mean, I'm still in the process of forgiving people from many years ago, okay? But I'm doing it actively. When it comes up again, I thank you, God. I'm out of your way. You know, you just handle that. It's also been really interesting to see how God's done some of that stuff. And you're going like, yeah, I don't remind me never to be on the other side of that, right? So just get out of the way. Get out of God's way. Some of you are going, oh, no, I'm not going to get out of God's way because God's going to have mercy. I know it. I just know it. That's not your business, is it? Do you trust his heart? Do you trust him enough to get out of his way? No, I'm going to stay right there and be God. You can do that. The torturers are inside eating you up and breakthrough is stopped in its tracks. You have a choice to make and God's going, trust my heart, little son of mine. Trust my heart, little daughter of mine. I'm God, I've got it. 
I got it. This is too big for you. This is a God thing. Move out of the way. And that's what we do. Number two, another thing that can really slow down and sometimes stop our breakthrough is confusing here for there. Confusing here for there. I call this priorities. So we looked at forgiveness. That'll stop breakthrough. Getting off in our priorities will slow down or stop our breakthrough. Listen to this story that Jesus gave. Jesus then gave them this illustration. A wealthy landowner had a farm that produced bumper crops. In fact, it filled his barns to overflowing. He thought, what should I do? Now that every barn is full, I have nowhere else to store more. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down the barns and build one massive barns that will hold all my grains and goods. Then I can just sit back surrounded with comfort and ease and I'll enjoy life with no worries at all. So far, so good to me, right? I mean, that sounds pretty good to me. This guy worked hard. He made a lot of money. He's like going, now it's time to like, you know, sit back and enjoy the fruits of my labor. And then Jesus says something really weird. Verse 20, God said to him, what a fool you are to trust in your riches and not in me. This very night, the messengers of death are demanding to take your life. Then who will get all the wealth you've stored up for yourself? This is what will happen to all those who fill up their lives with everything but God. Now, when I look at this, I think it's really important to understand. I mean, at first glance, this, what this man did, it, it didn't seem wrong at all. It's hard to know what he did wrong. I mean, he made a fortune in farming, and if you know farming, it's a lot of hard work. So he must have been smart. He must have been uh, able to, to work really hard and, and, and have a good work ethic. And he built up this, you know, he had some good luck along with it. But all of these things, it sounds pretty good. And what's interesting here, it says that basically his problem was he had so much stuff that he didn't have a place to store it. And, and his success had overwhelmed his capacity. Still, that sounds pretty good, right? I mean, basically, what he said was, and this is probably true of many of you, I have more money than I can spend. How many? Yeah? Oh, wait, no, no. <laughs> I have more food than I can eat. I have more cars than I can drive. What a problem this is. More clothes than I can wear. More shoes. We won't get into shoes, okay? It's a nice problem to have maybe, you know, to have so much. Jesus is not condemning this man for working hard, being rich and successful. He's not. Unless there be any misunderstanding. If you can take your company from a $200,000 company to a $200 million company and create jobs and make a difference in people's lives, that's an amazing thing. This isn't a parable about the danger of being rich and successful. This is a parable about the danger of confusing here for there. That was what this man did. Not that he was rich and successful. Jesus condemned this man. He called him a fool because he forgot one fact. He forgot that it was all temporary. He, he forgot. Someone asked at a wealthy man's funeral, how much did he leave? The other guy said, he left all of it. And you know that's always true, right? It's always true. We always leave all of it. 
No matter how great we are. How many of you watched the royal wedding? Was that pretty exciting? Woohoo! Nobody's even going to admit it. I love that because... <laughs> but you know, the royals today, they're nothing like the, the old-time royals. I mean, they had the power of life and death and all that, you know. I mean, yeah, they got some billions of dollars, but I mean, those, those other guys, they were like God on earth almost, right? To their people. One of those guys was King Louis the, the 14th of, of France. He reigned for 72 years, and he named himself something. He was a humble man, so he called himself Louis the Great. <laughs> Louis the Great. King Louis the 14th. I am Louis the Great. Isn't that awesome? Did anybody say, you aren't great? Nobody said that, right? At least nobody that didn't get their head chopped off. So he's going, I'm Louis the Great. And everybody, you know, I mean, that's who he was. He died in 1715. And his funeral was this amazing, I mean, there was just wealth everywhere. You could just see it. His coffin up front in the cathedral. And there were just candles all over. And then they put all the candles out. There's only one candle to signify right up by his coffin how great he was. Bishop Massillon was the, the bishop. He was known for his oratory. And people were waiting for this amazing funeral message about Louis the Great. And what Bishop Massillon did when he started, he reached up and he, with his fingers, snuffed out the candle and the whole place was in pitch blackness. And in the blackness and the silence, he said, only God is great. And that was the end of the service. That was it. You see, the truth is, only God is great. It doesn't matter what we attain here. There's only one great one. The one who created us. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That's the truth for all of us, isn't it? That's, that's our life. It's so temporary. We don't talk a lot about heaven in American Christianity. We don't. At funerals, but other than that, not very much. I think the reason why is because we've got it pretty good here, you know? And so we kind of want to know, well, how can I make this, this incrementally better? You know, in Burundi, where the life expectancy is like in the 40s, or if really lucky, like early 50s, they talk about heaven a lot there. Working with the Batwa people who have been some of the most under-resourced people in the world. And by the way, the most amazing thing I heard um, just last month from Claude, our man on the ground that's on our, st- on our staff there in Burundi. Community of faith, you have created in the last five years in Burundi 60,000 jobs. That's amazing to me. That's, that's turning a country around to me. And it's just beginning. It's just, it's on this roll that's, uh, I've never seen anything like what we've been able to accomplish there under God. God's doing it. But the Batwa people, one of the elders, he's about this tall, comes up to like here on me. And, you know, it's just, it's a hard life. They've been undernourished. They've been, uh, it's just difficult, difficult life, especially before you came along. And they were marginalized and, so much prejudice against them. They wouldn't even let their kids go to school. They called them dogs and not people. But he looks like he's a man of wisdom about 70 or 80 years old. I mean, he just looks 
like he's been through it gnarled and stuff. And so it was his birthday. I said, oh, Francois, how old are you? And he was like 47. And I was stunned just looking at it. And what I realized was this life is hard and it's over quickly for them. And they talk about heaven a lot. They're not trying to make heaven here. They know the reality that that's not true. But in America, I don't think we quite have that. Watchman Nee, the great Chinese um, theologian, he said this, and, and author, he said this. Let me just read it to you. We approach God like little children with open hands begging for gifts. Because he's a good God, he fills our hands with good things like life and health and friends and money, success, recognition, challenge, marriage, children, a nice home, a good job. And so like children, we rejoice in what we've received, but then we run around comparing what we have with each other. When our hands are finally full, God says, my child, I long to have fellowship with you. Reach out your hand and take my hand. But we can't do it because our hands are so full. God, we can't, we cry, but put those things down and, and take my hand, he replies. No, we can't, it's, it's, it's too hard to put them down. But I'm the one who gave them to you in the first place. Oh God, what you have asked for is too hard. Please don't ask us to put these things aside. And God answers quietly, you must. And God orchestrates the affairs of life, both the good and the bad, to bring us to the place where our faith will be in him alone. Slowly but surely, we go through life he weans us away from the things of the world. At first, this process touches only our possessions, possessions which can be replaced, but eventually it touches our relationship, which can't be replaced. It touches our loved ones, who can't be replaced. Finally, it touches life itself, which is never replaced. And then there is nothing left but us and God. Through all this process, our Heavenly Father leads us along the pathway of complete trust in Him. Slowly but surely, we discover even the dearest and sweetest things of life take second place to the pleasure of knowing God. In the end, we discover that he has allowed our hands to be emptied of everything so that they can be filled with himself. Now, I don't profess, even reading these words, I realize I don't understand the full extent of this. My hands are still full of some beautiful things, a beautiful wife, children, grandchildren, friendships, health, all of these things. But I, I think that the process of growing older is teaching me something, you know? And uh, my Achilles right now is out because I took some uh, antibiotics that, Leviquin, don't take Leviquin, okay? And it messed up my Achilles and that's what they're working on right now, trying to get this back in. But that never happened when I was 20, you know? And so now I got my big boot on. But I feel some of these things. And you feel things begin to slip away a little bit. And you begin to understand. And you see so many friends that have gone on. And you start to feel the weight of that. And I know that my mom and dad are here. And as you turn 80 and beyond, you feel it even more. But all of us, at the very end, it's just going to be us and him again, isn't it? Naked, you came into the world. Naked, you will leave it. You know, that's, that's the truth of it. And I think what God's trying to get us to do is hold things lightly. It, it's kind of like this. When my kids were little, they loved to go to the beach. And they still love the beach a lot. But what they would do at the beach, besides play in the water a little bit, they would right at the edge of the sand where it's still moist, you know, where the water's coming up a little bit, they would build the most amazing sandcastles. 
And they would have all these little things and they would make turrets and they would try to build it up really high. And sometimes I was pretty amazed at what they did. But you know what would always happen later in the day? The tide would begin to come in and it would come up over that sandcastle and you would start to see it kind of start to dissolve. And I would think, oh no, they've worked so hard on that. But you know what my kids would do? They would just squeal with delight. They would, they love to watch the tide wash out their sandcastle. This whole world for us is like building sandcastles. But I don't think we squeal so much with delight when the sandcastles begin to wash out with the tide, do we? When, when we see some of those things we've worked so hard for, and God's trying to tell us all the time, this is temporary. See, my kids knew that was temporary. They knew this was going to happen. But we build sandcastles and we act like they're going to stand forever. They're not. It's all temporary. It's temporary. Well, how do, you, how do you do this? How do you, how do you get hold of this? Jesus told a story, and this is, I love this. Picture this with me. A first century Hebrew walking through a field. He's got his, his staff, and it's a difficult terrain, and he's slipping and sliding around, and so he keeps sticking his staff in the ground, and all of a sudden, thunk. He's out in the middle of nowhere, but thunk, 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 and Something's down there. He's in a hurry, but he decides to stop and see. And he begins, and it's some kind of a chest. And he pulls it out, opens it up. And inside are the precious jewels of every color you could imagine. There's gold. There's Roman money from 70 years before imprinted with a Caesar long dead. And, and, and he realizes some wealthy man has hidden in the field this treasure. Now, there was a law in Jesus' day that when you bought land anything on the land under the land around the land was yours too it just came with it and so you know what he does he's a crafty fella Jesus said he buried it back up and he took off at a run and you know marked the place in his mind where it was and then he went and he sold everything that he had he sold his house he sold his donkey he sold everything that he could find and he scrounged it all together to buy that piece of land because he knew when he got that land, he got all the treasure. And then Jesus said something really interesting. He said, the kingdom of heaven's like that. And you're going like, huh? What he's saying is, there's one thing of great value, God's kingdom. There's one thing that's going to last, God's kingdom. There's one thing worth putting all your effort into and everything that you're having. You're not a fool. People looked at him while he's selling all this stuff to get this scroungy piece of land. And they're saying, what an idiot. But he knew he wasn't an idiot. He knew where the treasure was. And that's what Jesus is saying. That there's treasure there. It's so, so much so that like a lot of us, we don't realize that this life is kind of like Monopoly. How many of you have ever played Monopoly? A couple of us, yeah. Takes forever, doesn't it? How many of you ever finished a game of Monopoly? That's a good better question. But it goes on and on and on. But what if I came to you and I said, I just won a huge game of Monopoly. I had Park Place and all these. And I'm just going to pay off my debt. Here is 20 grand in Monopoly money. You're going to go like, eh, no. Right? Because it's just Monopoly money. But really, that's what the Bible talks about. Listen. Listen to what. It says, number three, forgetting what is whose? Stewardship. Stewardship. Whoever can be trusted with a, a little can also be trusted with a lot. Whoever is dishonest with a little is dishonest with a lot. If you cannot be trusted with worldly riches, who then will trust you with true riches? 
And if you cannot be trusted with things that belong to someone else, who will give you things of your own? No servant can serve two masters. The servant will hate one master and love the other or will follow one master and refuse to follow the other. You cannot serve both God and worldly riches. The Pharisees who loved money were listening to all these things and made fun of Jesus. Here's the thing. Money is the mirror of our heart before God. You want to know where your relationship is with God. It's not about how many Bible studies you come to. It's not about how many chapters of the Bible you read. If you look at your money and how you spend your money, you'll know. The Bible's real clear about that. Your treasure and your money. It says wherever your money goes, you're, you know, and your, your heart's going to follow after it. Your heart will always be there. So you can, I mean, it's the same thing with terrorists. How do we track down terrorists today? Follow the money trail, right? And we follow it all the way back and see where their devotion lies. See who's given that to them. Who's, where are they getting this stuff from? How's this working out? It's the same thing for us. We just follow the money trail. The thing about money, the thing about this life, the thing about monopoly is at the end, it all goes back in the box. Right? That's, you always put, you put all the little, you just close the box, put the box up. And then it's waiting for someone else to play. That's what this life is. You're not even using your money. You're using God's money. You say, no, it's my money. Oh, you're going to take it with you? You have it for about 80 years, 90 years if you're lucky. And then it goes back in the box. And somebody else plays with the same money that you had. And God says the whole point was this is a test. I'm looking at who's going to be interested in my things, doing things for me. Paying attention to my agenda, that's what I'm looking for for all of eternity. You see God as a giver or a taker. He's saying I'm a giver. You give out. His mathematics are strength. You give out and I'll give you more. The more you give, the more you get. But we're saying no, the more I hoard, the more I have. And he's going, no, it doesn't work that way. It works completely different. In fact, he says this. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great that you won't have room enough to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. What is he talking about? Because I definitely want to try this. Let me read you the first part of it. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out blessing. You see what God wants to do. He's, he's saying, I want you to give to my kingdom and to my stuff. Bring the tithe. Test me in this. How do you know that God exists? When I was in seminary, we studied the ontological arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological arguments, the teleological arguments for the existence of God. But the Bible only has one test for the existence of God, and that's tithing. That's giving to God's kingdom. He says, if you do this, if you give 10% of your income to me through your church, I am going to show you I'm God. That's an amazing thing. Let me read this last verse. If you're given much, much will be required of you. If much is entrusted to you, much will be expected of you. 